Some of you are saying amen because you feel like you have to. Some of you is like, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but it's something that we all face in life, and so we're going to continue on in our series in the book of James. As, like I said, we get down to the very end of this passage this morning. James is talking to those in the church who have been suffering. Have ever any of you ever suffered in your life? I think that we all can find a way to identify in this passage as we read it together. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version this morning, um, James chapter 5. Verses 7 through 12, I encourage you uh, to follow along on the screen or in your Bible or on your device, however it is that you read. But let's all turn to God's Word together right now. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged, for the judge is standing at the door. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. And I was taught in seminary never to apologize at the beginning of a message. And my seminary professors will not be happy with me, but I'm going to apologize in advance for you new folks. If I cough during this message, pray for me, would you? It's been something I've fought for a month. I don't feel sick. Hopefully I don't look sick, but there's not much I can do about that. Um, But just pray for us as we dive in this morning. So, Three times James mentions the word patience in this passage, and it must be something that he wants us to listen to. It must be something that we all need to hear. And the kind of transformational work that the Holy Spirit is seeking to do in each and every one of us, so much that James repeats it not once, not twice, but three times, encouraging those who are going through trials to be patient, to stick it out, Um, to be long-suffering, and then he gives some reasons why and what God wants to do in us and what we can see of the Lord in this passage. So in spite of the fact that I have a cough and a struggle to last Sunday, I think I barely made a 20-minute sermon. I was surprised no one commented on that. Um, But I have actually six thoughts to share with you this morning. And so if you have a spot to take notes, make sure it's big enough to have a bunch of writing. They're simple, like much of the Bible is. It's not complicated. This isn't, you know, doctoral, greed, theological work we're going to be doing this morning. This is simple kingdom business stuff that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us and to help us to understand when we're going through suffering. And can I just, can we disagree this morning that suffering hurts? It's painful. It can be so debilitating that it feels like it's the only thing happening in your life. It can be so difficult that it, that it drowns out every other emotion. It can even drown out the realities that we know about God and about who he is and the way that he works and the work that he's already done in our lives. Suffering can become the most prominent reality in our life. And we've all been there. We might be in the middle of it right now. And James' passage is a reminder to us of six things that we can ask the Holy Spirit to bring to our attention, to teach us and to guide us through as we walk through these journeys together. And the first 
one that James talks about at the very beginning of this passage, verse 7. He says, be patient, brothers and sisters. So this applies to everyone in this room. He didn't just write the sermon for the fellas. He wrote it for the ladies too, for all of us. Be patient because the Lord is coming. And that was an interesting concept for me to think about that. You know, I want to be patient because God says I'm going to fix it in a week. (laughs) I can be patient for a week. I could even be patient for a month. But James has a different timeline that he's trying to teach us than most of our timelines. We want things to get fixed in a week, or we want things to get fixed in a month, or if we really have to wait a long time, we have to wait a year. But James says, be patient because sometime in the future the Lord is coming back. And so there's a couple things that he's trying to teach us here is that God's timing is usually not ours. Amen? We can all agree that we, you know, Jesus even prayed that God could remove what was about to happen on the cross from him right then and there. And the Lord said, no, this is the cup I want you to bear, and we'll talk more about that uh, later on down the line. But for us, we want, my grandma would always tell me um, a joke kind of prayer, Lord, teach me patience and teach it to me right now. (laughs) And uh, has God ever answered that kind of prayer for you? I can't really think of too many times that he's done that for me. It is a kind of endurance that the Bible often talks about. Long-suffering is a pretty popular word in the Bible. The Lord is trying to teach us. However, in spite of the fact that God's timing may not be ours, there is something about God's timing that will change everything. And I think that's more of what James is trying to help us to understand here is that much of the time we live in the paradigm of our pain and our trials as, like I said, the only reality that we know. It encompasses us, it surrounds us, it overwhelms us, it it, it captures us, and it imprisons us because it seems like the only world that we know. And James says there's another world coming, brothers and sisters, that will be so much different and be so unlike anything that you know on this earth that we can say these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, because we've been given a different kind of paradigm. Paul's words about suffering. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that fars outweigh all the suffering. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, on the temporary, on the circumstances, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And he's saying that we can fix our eyes on our current troubles and trials and let them overwhelm us. We can fix our eyes on this heavenly home that God has promised that there is an eternal perspective to life and to pain and to suffering. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm going to go and I'm going to make a place for you. I'm going to paraphrase. Jesus was trying to say that will blow your mind. But there's a reality that I've heard in this world And it goes something along the lines of this. If we fix our eyes on the things of the earth, it's really hard to really think a whole lot about heaven. But if we think, if we fix our eyes on heaven, it's a lot harder to be stuck in the things of today. And James is asking us, where where is our paradigm fixed? On a God who has planned eternity and glory for us that will make everything that we're going through now seem like not even worth mentioning. Or are we so captured by our reality that we don't have the vision to see the future that God has planned for us? John, chapter, John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, God is doing something 
miraculous, you and I, when, when we allow the Holy Spirit to change our, our view, to shift our focus, and he says, all who have this hope of everlasting life in us purify themselves just as he is pure. There's something purifying, cleansing, life-changing, joy-giving, life-altering when we allow the Holy Spirit to take our eyes off of everything that's happening right now and to think about the things that God is going to do for us in eternity. There is a hope that God gives that no one else can offer us. Peter talked about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. He said, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We can spend our time dreading the now, or we can spend our time anticipating the Lord's coming, anticipating the moment when God changes everything. And so James says, I want you to be patient because of what God is going to do in the future. And he uses an illustration. If you've ever been involved in farming or thought much about it, this is going to ring home for you. But he's like, hey, you know, the farmer has an end goal, right? He has money to raise. He has a family to take care of. He has equipment to buy and replace. And, and that, <coughs> that crop, that harvest is everything to him. And if you've ever been around farmers, whether it's one acre or a thousand acres, they all do it the same. They all get their seeds ready. They till the ground and they plant the seed and they wait. And except for a little bit of fertilizer, and if they're able to, a little bit of irrigation, there's nothing they can do about what's happening underneath the ground. The seed of their faith has been planted, and then they have to wait literally for months for that crop to be, to be harvested. And they have no idea whether the seeds they planted in the ground will even sprout until those first seedlings start coming out. And James is saying that in our lives, there's something about planting our faith in God, that we, we say, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I want to see a different kind of reality than, than just focusing all of my problems. You have an eternity plan for me, and I'm going to take a deep breath like that farmer. And every time I'm tempted to go and dig up those seeds to make sure that they're there, <laughs> to go and take out a row that I've hoed in order to make sure something's happening, I'm going to, even if the rains don't come at all, even if it feels dry and lonely and empty, I know that you have promised me an eternal life, everlasting glory, and I'm going to wait and hold on and be patient until that moment comes. Paul talked in Romans chapter 13 about the kind of teeter-totter that we can find ourselves on. He talked about the end of our suffering this way. He says, the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. Jesus could come at any moment. Any moment he could come. And there is something about living the reality of Jesus' coming again that changes our entire perspective about life. And he says, if you want to learn how to find God in your sufferings, learn to anticipate the Lord's coming. And other things he talks about in James chapter 9, he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For the judge is standing at the door. He says to recognize the Lord's judgment. Now, the first one felt really good to me. <laughs> Thinking about Jesus is coming again and changing my perspective and realizing that God has an eternity plan for me and my mind can barely even begin to comprehend what that's going to look like, but my heart and my mind and my soul can be fixed on that. And then he says, 
but be sure that you don't grumble against one another because the judge is standing at the door. Heart check here, friends, for each and every one of us. So, so he's talking to a church that's, that's been persecuted. Things aren't going right. Things aren't feeling right. People are experiencing pain and, and being run over. <coughs> and he says to them, don't grumble against one another. Now, I could have spent an entire message going through the Bible, talking about all the times that God encourages people to not grumble, and all the pain and all the trouble and all the heartache that happened to God's family because people decided that grumbling about their problems and grumbling about the people who they think have caused them is the most important thing that they can do. And, and James just simply says, stop it. That is not what the family... Remember what James is about? It is about authentic Christian living. It is not about Sunday morning sitting in the pew, stamping my passport to heaven. This is real discipleship, really following Jesus. And real disciples realize that there is a problem about when they grumble against God or against each other. James says, just so you're motivated, remember that the judge is standing at the door. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. You know, when, if you've ever served on jury duty, if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know, you're usually all already in there. And then what do they do when the judge comes in? All rise for the honorable so-and-so is here. And everyone stops talking, straightens their tie, stands up because the judge is in the room. And there's something about that that James is trying to say. In this, in this age, when the judge would come into the room, he literally would walk up to the entrance to the room and stand at the door until everyone was quiet. And what James is trying to say is that for sometimes in the church, we're so consumed with our issues and with our struggles and with the people that we think that have caused them that we spend a lot of the time just chewing each other out. Not edifying, not encouraging, not fixing our eyes on Jesus, but in our pain, we lash out to people around us and we hurt them and we cause damage to the church, damage to the family of God, that the devil's pretty happy is happening, and God, I know, isn't. I can also think of times as a kid, I thought of it this way, when, when I didn't think my mom was around. You ever bug your siblings when you didn't think mom and dad were watching? Uh-huh, yeah, you did. Some of you, they're still scarred from what you were doing. And I can remember one time, teasing my sisters, and, and, and I, I've always been a hunter. And I had these magazines that had pictures of, you know, they were harvested animals, so they weren't alive. And my sisters weren't really thrilled with those pictures, but I, I thought it was funny to see them, oh, gross, and oh, you know, and they get all upset, and I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And I felt safe as long as I knew mom was at Well, one day, mom snuck up because they were crying, and, and she walked in the door, she's like, Peter, I'm right behind you. Do you think I continued to do the actions that I'd just been involved in 10 seconds before? Mm-mm. Nope. James is saying so much of the time, our perceptions are so skewed from what God really sees and the reality that God is everywhere and sees and hears everything that we say and do. Remember, the judge is watching, he's listening. He's looking at the church and the way she talks to herself and looking at the church and the way that she deals with herself, looking at the church and listening to the way that we communicate to each other and do business together. The judge is at the door and he's watching and he's listening. So anticipate the Lord's coming and we remember that the judge is standing at the door 
listening to the way that we're going through our trials. And that, that's not meant to think of God as a you know, policeman with a baton ready to beat us up. It is a God who holds us accountable. A God who has a better plan and a better way than a, than a, than a spirit and an attitude of complaining and antagonism and attacking. And a God who lifts up and builds and encourages and loves it's a reminder that he's watching. Another thing that James talks about in this passage is following the Lord's servants, looking at the examples that have gone on before you. Brothers and sisters, he said in verse 10, and an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Have you ever felt like you've tried to get a message across to somebody and they just don't get it? You have tried for days and weeks and months and years and you've said it every which way you can think of. Nicely, quietly, angrily, loudly, offering them incentives or threats and everything else under the sun. <laughs> and you read the prophets and, and you see all of that. For years and sometimes for their entire lifetime, God called them for one purpose, to share the good news of God. And for some of them, it cost them their years, their health, and their life. And James says, I want you to remember those men and women who literally had everyone against them. They feared for their lives. And yet they persevered because beyond a shadow of a doubt, they knew that God had spoken to them and touched them and given them a message to follow. Acts chapter 7 tells a story of a man named Stephen. Talks about the reality that Pretty much every father that the church knew at that time had been through persecution for their faith, for their testimony, for the gospel. Think of Moses and David and Elijah, Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, John the Baptist beheaded for the word of the Lord. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11 talks about it this way. I don't have time to tell about Gideon Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back, raised to life again. Others were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, sawed in two, killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then the Bible says this. We are surrounded by an amazing cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I don't know how you process that, but it's it's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, we can live in the doldrums of our pain. We can be entrapped and enslaved so much by our current circumstances that we miss there is something deep and powerful within us that God wants to do. God is planning to do in us. It doesn't mean that he's going to take us out of our circumstances. It means that he's going to fill us with his Holy Spirit in the middle of them. There's something that God wants to do. 
and the prophets and those who've gone before us set an amazing example of perseverance, of focus, of concentration, of surrender. And God changed kingdoms, brought people back from the dead because they were willing to persevere with the Holy Spirit in their heart through all kinds of sufferings. Fourthly, this morning, moving on, another thing that we need to be able to allow the Holy Spirit to do in our lives in the middle of this is to understand the Lord's blessings. And you're thinking, Pastor, this morning, I'm, we're talking about suffering. So how does blessings fit in with that? <laughs> I'm thinking about the pain and the stuff and the agony and the grief that I'm going through and the hard things in my life, and, and I don't want to talk about blessings. I want to talk about pain. <laughs> I want to talk about my circumstances. I want to talk about all the things that are going wrong. And James says there's a special blessing that no one else will ever know. He isn't saying in this part of this passage, I don't think, that God is saying, hey, guess what? I'm going to bless you with some bad stuff. But have you ever been blessed in the middle of bad stuff with God's Spirit? I read a passage earlier where it says that you're being purified in the middle of your sorrows, in the middle of your trials. God is transforming you. What we want God to do is to transform our circumstances, right? Fix this. Make that go away. I want this to change. I want that to go away. I need this. I want this. That has to happen. This has to stop. And you all have those lists in your mind. And what God is simply saying to us is, you know what? That's not what I'm focused on. I'm focused on you. What's happening deep in the core of who you are as a person, as a disciple, as my child. And the blessing of knowing God in the middle of some of our darkest days is a gift and a treasure that the world will never know. But I want to encourage you to think of someone in your life who you know is a believer, and it doesn't matter what they go through, they have joy. I know you have people in your mind right now that you're thinking about, and I can't think of a better word for someone like that than a blessing. They allowed God in the middle of some hard stuff to bless them. And they, in turn, are a blessing to others. Are we able to see God's blessings through the pain, through the darkness, through the suffering? We need to be able to understand that maybe just hearing his voice is the greatest blessing of all. Something else that we need to see, number five in this passage is to realize the Lord's purpose. Any of you ever heard of a man named Job? I know you have. And uh, as, I, as I remembered the story this week and thought about it, I was like, all right, Lord, so we're, we're thinking about this purpose. And, and this is what James says about it in verse 11. He says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. What do you think maybe one of God's purposes was in Job's suffering? Anyone? Hmm? All right. So make Job more dependent on God than he'd ever been before. How many of us have ever heard Job's story and been touched by it? All of us have. 
There is so much more going on in our world than we can see. There are so many people watching us and listening to our heart and observing us as we go through the story of our life. It may not be written about in the Bible, but you and I come across scores of people as we live our journey, as we live out our story. And there's so much more going on than just how we feel about what we're going through. God has eternal purposes in mind. So Satan comes to God and says, you know, you thought this Job was something else, but I tell you what, things go wrong for him and he'll turn his back on you. God says, I think I know him better than that. Give him your best shot. And Satan does. I think he does that today. He gives us his best shot. Do you think God's purpose is you to live a defeated life? No way. Do you think God's purpose is he allows suffering to happen is to torture us? No way. It is, like Jeannie said, at least one of the purposes of God is to draw us to him. Job asked questions and had conversations with his friends and with God that is never recorded again in all of the Bible. He asked the kind of questions of his friends, and his friends asked the kinds of questions about him <coughs> and the dialogue about, about God and his sovereignty and his rule over our life and his concern for us and, and the fact that we think we're in control. God says, were you there when I made the foundations of the earth? Can you change a wisp of the wind? Is there anything you can do to stop what I've done? No. But I'm here for you. The God who can do all those things is right here with you. His purpose might be to change our perspective of the story that we're in the middle of. It might just be to encourage us to the fact that there are scores around us listening to the way we go through what we're going through. It may just be this morning that you need more of God than you've ever had before. And I'm sorry to say that that isn't going to change the circumstance. But it will change the way you face it. God's purpose is to call us in the middle of our darkest times closer to his heart than we would ever be any other way. Now, I heard a sermon a couple years ago that took the purpose of God a little bit too far and says, you know, God is going to put you through a hard time, and then just like Job, you're going to have twice as much as you've ever had before. Just wait until the right time. And uh, by the way, make sure you give $1,000 to the church to make sure it happens sooner than later. <laughs> and uh, if you ever hear a preacher say like that, turn him off and don't ever turn him or her back on again. But remember the first point I talked about? Anticipating the Lord's coming. Remember the words I read to you from Paul that the things that you're going through right now, all this suffering that seems to, compared to what God has planned for you, compared to what God is going to lay out in front of you, compared to what he wants to do in you, it's just, there's no comparison if we put our eyes in the right place. So many other things that God could do. Maybe he has someone in your family who needs to see your faith lived out. Maybe there's someone in your church who needs to hear a testimony of God seeing you through and how he's transformed you from the inside out. There are so many things that the Holy Spirit can do in and through us if we let him. 
And we can pray for deliverance, and we can pray for healing, and we can pray for the things that we need. But in the end, it's like, Lord, I am your servant. I am here. And that's why I think number six last is so important. We need to understand the Lord's character. As I've dialogued in my own heart about this passage, there's just been this working assumption, and I've even felt it as we've shared together this morning, that that there, there's this kind of assumed position that, that we're over here in the middle of what we're going through and we're gritting our teeth and we're trying to figure it out and we're trying to work on it and, 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 and then God's over there somewhere and, and we need him to fix it, right? We need him to change it or, or, or we, we should pray that God would transform us so that we can move closer together again. But it, it's almost like this assumed position that we have that, that God is against us. Or that there's, you know, ever seen football player trying to score a touchdown and they put out the stiff arm to try to keep the, the tackling player at bay so they can keep on going with it. You know, we, we, we have a stiff arm for God. Or maybe we feel like God has a stiff arm for us. And it's just, it's, it's almost assumed in our human nature, even as believers, that, that God is trying to trick us. Or God wants to watch us cry and he gets joy out of that or or something about <coughs> the way God thinks about leading his people that, that he just <laughs> has to cause pain. But the passage says, after all that Job had went through, remember that God is full of compassion and mercy. Any of you uh, top off your gas tank when you go to the gas station? I mean, you like click the lever until there's the last little bit. I know that, that they say that it's not safe, but, but I, you know, especially when you get a new car, I really want to make sure I know how many gallons are in that gas tank. And if you don't like filling up your tank, then you get every last drop out of there. And, and, and I actually did once have it. I was a little bit overzealous, and, and I filled the tank to where the gas had come to the edge of the cap and then out onto the ground. I just, it was full to the brim. Was there anything else in there but gas? No. That tank was full of only one thing. Exactly what that car was designed to use. And the Bible says that God is full of compassion and mercy. That means that that's his nature. That's how he views us. That's his heart for us. The Bible says that when Jesus looked on the crowds, his his gut was turned inside out. You've ever had that kind of stirring inside of you that just, that wrenches your spirit. The Bible says that that's the way God feels about us. And I know that we still yearn that that compassion would turn into fixing all of our problems. I was talking with another pastor this week and he asked me, um, What's your word for 2019? And those of you who don't know me won't get this, but the first thing that came to me is Oregon Ducks. And it's like, no. No, no, that's two words for one thing. And he was like, yeah, you know, if they don't have a good season, then your year is ruined. I'm like, well, that's not my plan. <clears throat> Joking aside. A word that keeps coming up in, in almost every conversation I can think of about church, about, about Christianity, is opportunity. Is opportunity. Throughout James, God has offered 
to us a picture of authentic Christian discipleship. It is much more than looking in the mirror and go, oh. It is much more than saying that you love without having the ability to act on it. It is much more than coming to church and saying that you care for the poor and, and it's very different to go to the orphanage and do something about it. It's very different to claim you're a Christian and then listen to some of the things that come out of your mouth and those things don't gel together. There is something deep and pressing about what God is inviting us into throughout this book that is that there is a rawness, there is a realness to it, there is a power to it that that caused the church to be what it was. It was a group of men and women who cared about one thing and one thing only, following Jesus wherever he led them to go. Taking every opportunity of, of learning and listening and discerning the Lord's voice in their life and those opportunities abound in our day. And friends, they even abound in our darkness. And I know that in the darkness, it feels like we don't even know which direction to go. Because the, because the hurt is real, the, the fear is real, the frustration is there, and it just feels like we're trapped in it. <coughs> what James is inviting us into this morning, I believe, is an opportunity to discern the Holy Spirit's voice in the middle of whatever it is that we're stuck in. And learn where God wants us to go, how he wants us to respond, how he wants us to think as we look through this passage. And, and, and we could re-preach the sermon again, but we're not going to. Of all the things that the Holy Spirit can and wants to do in our life, get our eyes off of the now and think about tomorrow. Learn to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. Focus on the things that really matter. And he says, just remember that God is full of compassion and full of mercy. Now, I got verse 12 on the end here, and it really doesn't fit anything. I just want to say, I've heard people use this passage that's saying, James said in James chapter 5, verse 12, that swearing is a sin. <coughs> and I would encourage you not to take the Bible out of context, because he's saying, in a, in a sense, this. It comes down to the point in your life where either we have to be so vehemently dependent upon our own strength that we have to say anything to convince ourselves and others that we're serious. So we'll say something like this. This is how the message, I believe, translates this passage. Do not say, I swear to God I will do this or that. Now, we have in our culture that being a negative thing against God. In that culture, it would be, Upon God's name, I promise this or that. So the context of this passage isn't cursing. It is, it is having to drum up within us something more than what's necessary. And so here's the opportunity that James invites us into. It, it's just simply following Jesus. It's taking the opportunity to listen to the voice of God and take that next step wherever it might be. Any of those six things, maybe all of them, Maybe something else that the Holy Spirit says. I know for me, that first one grabbed my attention. Where is my perception? Is it in today or is it in eternity? And when God changes our perception, he changes all of us. We're going to have a closing song now, and we're going to invite our worship team up to lead us in that before we dismiss this morning. So talks about where our eyes are fixed. <clears throat> 